Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, executive producer, joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Colonel. This is The Arms Race, episode 471 on our network. Appreciate uh, your support. We've got a great show today, packed full of information for young pitchers out there and, and inquisitive baseball minds. Before we get to that and introduce Jim, just want to thank a couple groups, Millions. Make sure if you're following us closely and you've been in for the hall now, and you're part of that 70,000 subscriber list, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. If you're interested in, in uh, having our host speak or you're an advertiser that wants to advertise, go to the book me option on millions and it'll walk you right through how to do the, either one of those things with us and certainly welcome and embrace all opportunities and would love to hear uh, our audience engage and see our audience engage with our host directly. Also, you can go to the shop tab. And you can get merchandise, hoodies, T-shirts, hats. Or you can ask one of our hosts a question uh, consistent with their place in baseball. We'll give you a 30 to two-minute answer back on email video. And uh, you'll get a chance to experience our host up close and personal. So that's on the shop option. To Jaw Bats, RVG at checkout gets you a discount on Major League Baseball's newest certified bat. Uh, we love it. Uh, Tanner loves it. Jeff Fry loves it. So RBG at checkout. Also the kinetic arm, we believe could be an answer to some of the rash of arm injuries out there. Offload stress externally, prevents arm lag, multi-joint dynamic stabilizer, aids in deceleration, five patents on it. You use code RVG, all caps, DAG, capital D-A-G, RVG, DAG at checkout, gets you a discount on that, uh, that device. Uh, my son Tanner, again, loves it. Jeff Fry's loving his. And then one-on-one college pathways programs, appreciate your support, 700 plus kids into college on scholarships to the tune of $540 million over the last four years. So a lot of good work being done by one-on-one college pathways. And then Monet Hair Products, uh, they promised us last week they were going to get with us this week, which they have, and they, they've got the great self-care products. And they said they can cure our hat head. Most of our hosts said that they don't have enough hair to cause hat head right now, so I've thrown that back at them. They're the hair experts. That's a problem for them to solve, not me and you, Jim. But uh, with that, I want to welcome our host, Jim Colonel, back to the show. Jim, welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I hope uh, everybody's well out there, including yourself. Yeah, doing great. I know you're always you're always asking questions, seeking answers, encouraging others to ask questions. Did, w- would you would you be willing to share just a high level view of the the puzzle you're putting together now with your researcher? Yeah, um, I, I as we as we talked about before, uh, and specifically maybe for some first time listeners, when when I look at this subject of of pitching, pitching injuries, pitching performance, um, we're we're trying to, or I'm trying to look at all the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, as with any issue we've talked about, there's not one cause, there's not one problem, there's not one uh, you know uh, solution. Um, there's a series of issues and a series of solutions, right? So that's what we're kind of looking at here. So, um, you know, we, we based upon that and looking at the pieces of the puzzle, um, we ask questions or I'm asking questions um, because based on what I see, 
um, it's a little different than what I'm reading and what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. Um, and getting into that, we talked about last week, we're always uh, interested in welcoming people and their responses and their questions and their comments. And I got a really good comment from a physical therapist this past week. And I want to kind of talk about uh, what he said and, and correct uh, many, any misunderstanding that the audience might have, because I kept on using the term arm lag, arm lag. And he said to me, well, you know, arm lag is really, and I realized that I was applying it to a, another another application or another position in the injury in the, in the arm motion. I'm sorry, arm lag is specifically what they talk about when when the ball goes in late cocking, uh, and it through the acceleration phase. So you know, for your viewers out there, it's really easy. If your hips are rotated to the plate, if you're righty or lefty, your elbow is going to be at nine or three o'clock, and the ball at vertically is at twelve. Well, arm lag is the degree the ball goes back to nine or you know nine or three o'clock on the clock there, right? That's that's the arm leg. And obviously it depends on your flexibility, but that's not what I was talking about. I was not talking about, or I'm not speaking to arm leg in the acceleration, uh, de release the acceleration phase. I'm talking about a ball lag. I should have used that term. Where is the ball in relationship to the body? Uh, relationship to the movement of the body, the position of the body, uh, because it goes back to the definition we've talked about is the kinetic timing. The goal is to minimize stress on the arm and shoulder, not maximize stress on the elbow and shoulder. So I apologize that apologize uh, to the viewing audience, listening audience. I'm sorry if uh, it maybe was a little bit confusing because I was using a term that's used for a specific uh, part of the motion, and I was using it to describe something else that I was looking to evaluate or I look to evaluate in the picture. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, I knew what you meant. I guess somebody out there had to do it. That's why we do this beginning phase two to kind of clarify if there's any uh, misunderstanding. And that's it's good that people are listening and and uh, asking questions critically. Exactly. So you want to be exact. You want to be as specific as possible. Uh, we both meant the same thing. I was just kind of describing it the wrong way. So it's really it's really ball lag. It's really my perspective. I talked about three positions when the front foot lands, when the ball's in early cocking, when your hips are rotated. Where's the ball? So I'm looking at it, um, how much, to what degree is the ball lagging behind the movement of the body, which to me puts extra stress, maximum stress on your shoulder joints and elbow and lat and oblique and et cetera, et cetera. That's what I was referencing. Well, good deal. I know we, we've been, we've been hitting kinetic timing the last, well, we, we hit it every show, but really <clears throat> hard the last two weeks. We've got a part three up today. Uh, yes, I, I thought we'd, we'd talk about, we talked about um, uh, striding and we talked about use of the lower half and uh, we kind of initially touched on arm path. So I, I just wanted to throw this out there and, and how I look at this and, and wor my working with infielders and pitchers and outfielders and catchers over the last 15 years when I was coaching, I wasn't necessarily just working with pitchers. I was teaching and working with other position players how to throw the ball properly with proper kinetic timing so the outfielder can hit the catcher and not sail it over the backstop so the third baseman can throw from behind the you know, bag and not you know, throw it into the stands and, and, and injure a fan. So, um, you know, so that's all related. So here's my, here's my observation on kinetic timing. I'm going to make the assumption that if you're throwing a baseball, regardless of the distance you're throwing it and, and the uh, velocity you're throwing it at, say it's average to high velocity, the kinetic timing of that principle is going to be the same, meaning the kinetic timer in my perspective for a catcher or a pitcher or an outfielder 
or a third baseman who needs to throw a laser and he catches the ball behind the bag or a shortstop who goes into the hole that needs to plant his back foot and throw a laser to the first baseman. I believe that the kinetic timing should be the same because they're all throwing a ball. What changes for me is the size, is the length of the arm path. Okay. Because the greater the arm path, the greater the width, the more velocity you're going to create. And I say that because a catcher, yes, he, the catcher needs to throw the ball 120 feet to second base, but the catcher needs to get rid of the baseball in a split second. He's got to shift his feet. He's got to get his arm up. He's got to throw. The catcher can't afford to create a long arm path. So he's got to create the shortest arm path he can because it's a timing issue to get the ball on a laser to get the runner out at second base. Makes sense. Let's go all the way out to the outfielder. Now, the outfielder's got a little more time because the runner's got to tag up before he throws, but he more than likely is going to throw the ball somewhere between 180 to 250 feet. So assuming the kinetic timing is the same, what does the outfielder's got to do? Well, he's got to create a big looping motion, right? He's got to generate a windmill with his arm to be able to throw the ball 250 feet. Makes sense, right? So where's that, where's that leave the pitcher? For me, it leaves the pitcher somewhere in between, in the middle. The pitcher controls it. It's a proactive motion. He's on the mound. He's not reacting to anything. But he's throwing the ball 60 feet. And since he's throwing it 80 to 100 times a game, he really has to create a motion that allows him to stay stable to be create a repetitive motion so he's able to you know perform and, and throw the baseball 80 to 100 times. So in my perspective, he's creating some type of alarm path between the outfielder and the catcher, right? That's that's how I look at this as far as arm path is concerned. And as I talked about before with the pitcher, when I work with pitchers and looking to create an arm path, I tell them that basically your upper half is spaghetti. Your arm is spaghetti. It's relaxed. You have three relaxed hinges, wrist, elbow, and shoulder. Because the more relaxed you are and the greater whip you can create, as long as you create proper kinetic timing, you're going to throw the baseball harder. If I'm a pitcher, and I create this really quick, early cocking position like a catcher, I'll be able to throw the ball with velocity. But I work with and I've a lot of uh, individual pitchers who pitched against us were shortstops and third basemen. You can tell I played the outfield because they – the infield, I'm sorry, because they threw the baseball like they were a shortstop. They had great kinetic timing, but they were cheating themselves on their arm. Okay, it makes sense. Conversely, if you're a pitcher and you try to create a – arm path that's like an outfielder, which is a really long loop, your rear and back, right? Your chances are your kinetic timings are going to be off because that loop is too too long. That arm path is too long. You can't get it up in time to maximize and transfer the energy. So as I said, I look at the pitcher somewhere in between. But my 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 assertion is from a scientific standpoint and a common sense perspective, that when you throw a baseball and you're looking to maximize your velocity, and you're looking to maximize your accuracy, whether you're throwing at 60 feet or 120 feet or 180 feet or 250 feet, I would think you would use the same kinetic timing. And to me, what would vary is the length of the arm path. Interesting. Make, make sense? Yeah, because you're talking, so outfield is throwing, you know, depends on where, but let's say they're cutting loose long distance from right field to the third base. You're looking at a you know, at least a couple hundred feet where catchers. How about outfield the home? How about, you know, catching the yeah. ball on the warning track? You know, guys have yeah. guns. 
You know, it's, it's, you know, and I'll tell you, in working with outfielders, right, who think they got to rear back and fire and create this arm pass so the ball goes down to the ground and comes around, and then they sail the ball over the backstop, and they go, well, when I go, why do you think that just happened? And they look at me and go, because you didn't get your arm up, okay? You didn't have any timing. You weren't on top of the baseball. That's why it sailed not only over the catcher's head, it sailed over the backstop, right? So once again, when I worked with outfielders, it was really it was a challenge to have them understand that it was more about as with pitchers getting or catchers getting their front foot down with their ball in a certain position than it is winding up and so when your front foot lands the ball is still below your waist because that's never going to get to the catcher that's always going to be above the backstop if you're trying to throw the ball 200 feet yeah. <laughs> that's just common sense and they've got they've got more moving parts with their you know, exactly, exactly. out there and the nice thing to remind those guys uh, I, I always remind them no matter where they are that ball has no brain it has no emotion it's going to go where you tell it to go and your body's mechanics are basically the voice to that ball fingertips to brain is my my phrase as uh, with all the kids regardless of sport now with with the with can the I pitch, add something to that can I add something yeah. you're right 100 percent I I always tell all players. Catchers, pitchers, outfielders, infielders, specifically pitchers. I go, when they're struggling, you know, they, they can't locate, they can't get the ball down. I go, here's the bottom line. Your body is not allow your body is not allowing your arm what you need your arm to do. Okay. So if you want to fix your arm and you want to be able to throw strikes and get the ball down or locate, you need to change your body. That's I use that all the time. Your body is not allowing your arm what you need your arm to do. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Now, the, the catcher obviously has the uh, <clears throat> has to have a quick release because of the the speed of the action. The outfielder has the crow hops. Yeah. Does the pitcher's variables would that include the slope of a mound because they're thrown from a rubber that's got a slight downhill slope, varying based on wherever they're throwing. Yeah, I, indoor ones are. I, I mean, and, and I guess this point: Do these indoor mounds, like you know, these wooden ones, do they right. affect kinetic timing? Well, um, the indoor mounds, some of them are too short, so I've yeah. seen them where the the pitchers will fall off. I like the ones that gradually, you know, have a, go down to the floor. Uh, the ones that are that are raised uh, a little. I've worked with pitchers; it's a little dangerous. Um, but here's interesting part about the rubber we talked about, right? And I did a study this week because I was curious. I uh, <laughs> researched and I Googled videos of th- um, players, third baseman catching the ball behind the hole and having to throw to first base. I also researched and Googled videos of shortstops in the hole, having to plant and throw the ball to first base. Now we're talking about kinetic timing. All these infielders, right, from behind the bag, it's at least 135 feet. And shortstop, probably anywhere from 90 to 120 feet when they're – right? They got to plant and throw in a split second, and they got to throw a, a laser beam to first to get the runner out. They all – they all had optimal kinetic timing, looked exactly like catchers, okay? So my question is, if I'm a third baseman – and I catch the ball behind the bag, and I got to throw a laser beam with accuracy to first base. And I'm using this optimal kinetic timing where when the ball is up, as we talked about that position, and my front side is pointed to the target, same thing with the shortstop in the hole. 
My question is getting back to the similarity in kinetic timing. Why don't pitchers use the same kinetic timing? Because they're only throwing the ball 60 feet to create a laser beam and to create accuracy when they throw the baseball. I'm just kind of curious because I don't understand the, the analogous logic there. Yeah, and I'm thinking that's rhetorical, right? That's not one of your we, – we would love to have somebody explain that to us. Is it – you know, we talk about the variables the outfielder goes through. They got the distance sometimes at, in the crow hops. The infielder, as you mentioned with the research you did this week, they, they actually have to be quick like a catcher, and the, the ball action is generally taking them away from where they're trying to throw. Oh, they they're gotta, moving away. They're moving away. They got to stop and plant. They're moving away. They're not even stationary. It's even tougher than a pitcher. They're moving. Yeah. And the, catch, the catcher has the gear, the swing of the bat, the location of a pitched ball, and then has to you know, complete a throw and catch. But the pitcher, as you said, it's uh, what they have is the most controlled out of all of them. So it's a proactive. I, it's you know, it, it's a proactive in that they're starting uh, the motion themselves and not reacting to it. They, they, their baseman is obviously reacting to the ball, and the catcher is reacting to the ball because the runner is already moving and the pitcher coming in. Um, you mentioned the rubber, though, and I thought about this when I was pitching and working with pitchers because um, somebody brought this up to me about the rubber. If all pitchers threw from the stretch and it was, a, it was flat ground, I believe that you wouldn't need a rubber in baseball. Okay? Hmm. Now, my feeling is that what happens is because the mound is sloped, and think about this in the windup. And this is just my own, you know, observation and thinking, uh, from, you know, from pitching. You have to stand on the rubber and your foot's in the hole and you're actually pivoting your foot as you wind up and, and get into your throwing motion where you go into the plate, right? So that back rubber to me is always about stability. If, if, if you have an elevated mound and say it's wet, even if it's not wet, and you try to rotate your foot, okay, you need something to, to stabilize, to brace your foot while you're moving it, okay? We talked about catchers. We talked about third baseman. Third baseman runs behind the bag, boom, plants his foot, goes to the target, okay? That's different than a pitcher who's actually rotating his foot maybe 60 to 70 degrees in the hole, you know, half his foot usually is, or when I was throwing, your toes in, the, in, in front of the rubber and your foot's on the rubber, right? So this is also interesting. A lot of people I work with, pitchers, and I've seen this, right? If it's that important to use the rubber, because people talk about driving off the rubber and driving to the plate, why is their foot half off the rubber? I can't tell you how many young pitchers who've had instruction that I work with, and half their foot is off the rubber, literally. I go, why wouldn't your foot be totally in front of the rubber? Because you're using that to brace yourself, right? Just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah, you barely see any of their foot on the rubber. Sometimes I've seen guys; it's like the <clears throat> the right edge of their their foot is barely touching the rubber. Why? Why? Why is that being taught? I think. Well, let me let me back up. Two things about that. No, let me answer that question first, and I'll get to another uh, question I have. I would think because you're looking for an angle. Um, if you're a right-handed pitcher and you're looking to create as big of an angle as you can, right? So you move your foot off the rubber, whether you're righty or lefty. It's, 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 it's the same as I could put my foot in the middle of the rubber 
and I can turn it and I can create my motion or I can put my foot all the way in the right side, all the way in the left side. It's a matter of a couple degrees, but if I'm on the right side of the rubber and say I have a, a three-quarter curveball, that ball is going to come in at a tighter angle for the hitter. I may, you know, it makes sense. Now, it's a couple inches. If your curveball sucks, it doesn't make a difference where you are on the mound. But that's just an example of why I think people move on and off the rubber. But to your point, which, which, which I like to throw back when people say, well, pitching is driving off the rubber. Pitching is driving to the mound. It's pushing, right? And it gets back to the point I made about three or four podcasts ago. Think of it strictly from a biomechanical movement, okay? The only reason biomechanically it would make any sense to me personally to use the rubber to push off and drive to the mound, drive to the target, I'm sorry, is if your goal was to see how far you could leap to the catcher, kind of like a standing long jump. That's that, how would my, that would be my That would be my impression. Because because yeah. the baseball motion, throwing motion is not that. It's getting your front foot down to create balance so you can create torque to throw the ball to the plate. So I don't understand this pushing off and driving because, quite frankly, anybody I've ever worked with or have evaluated who push off aggressively from the mound, they overstride, their back leg collapses severely, but more importantly, they land on their heel. If I land on my heel when I'm pitching, I'm not balanced and stable. I want to land on the balls of my feet. So as an aside, when I work with pitchers, I don't get hung up on their stride length. I do if it's too short because they're not utilizing their body. But I get concerned if they're striding out because they want to push off the rubber and they want to land on their heel. That tells me they're overstriding, which will impact their kinetic timing. That's really significant. So getting back to your question. If, if everybody in the room and the, and, and the experts talk about how you need to drive and push off the rubber, why in the world would three quarters of your foot be off the rubber to start with? <laughs> That's my question to your, to your statement about that. Yeah. So if, and, and your, your point was if they remove the rubber altogether and even the slope, flat ground guys would be, they would be better. Oh, I don't know uh, if they'd be better. I'm just saying that I look at it. Why is the rubber there? Because everybody talks about the pitching rubber. And it's, you know, well, pitchers have a rubber, third basemen's don't. I go, okay, fine. My feeling is that when I work with pitchers or I threw myself on flat ground from the stretch position, I could throw as hard as I want to. Okay. Once I get on the mound and it's elevated and that stride creates some, you know, it, it's, it's tougher to stay balanced, right? Meaning that when I'm striding to the plate and the mound's elevated, think of it years ago when it was like five inches higher. Yeah. I, need, I need that rubber to brace my back foot so I can stay balanced to stride to the plate. Once again, that's my own personal impression from pitching and understanding when people say to me, well, pitchers have rubbers. I go, well, do you understand why it's there? Well, that's my perception of why it's there and what the benefit is to the pitcher. That's my, that's only, that's my only comment. It was in reference to shortstops and third basemen who throw lasers who don't have a rubber to step on and use their foot as a brace, right? Well, let me ask you this too. We, so we have a young man, and I won't use names, but we help kids with scholarships, um, with, with helping identify opportunities for scholarships at the next level college we're talking about. He got time the other day you know, routine ground ball in the hole. 
uh, at shortstop and threw based on, again, I don't know where they timed them out of the hand or out of the back to the glove, but he got timed at 91 miles an hour. Okay. As a pitcher, when he got up there to throw, he was timed at 85 miles an hour. And again, you're not there, so it's you know hard to judge the circumstances, but from a uh, kinetic standpoint, does that make sense? Yes. I'm going to make the assumption I wasn't there. Okay. I'm going to make the assumption. I'm sure it's out of the hand because that's what they time now. Yeah. Okay. This is just my anecdotal assumption based on just the research I presented. For him, and I said this to several people I had this conversation with, okay, for him to throw that ball from shortstop, if he threw the ball from short with the same kinetic timing that pitchers use to throw the ball to home plate, his arm would fall off. He needs to create the proper kinetic timing when the ball's in early cocking pointed his front side pointed to the target to generate the energy to throw the ball 120 feet on line, a laser beam. Okay. Now the reason I'm going to make the assumption when he got on the mound, he changed the way he threw. So it gets back to now I can't judge the readings. It might be off a couple miles per hour, but it goes back to my statement last week. And the other week I've talked about this before that whenever I've worked with a pitcher and they've learned to make the adjustments to create stability and balance in their motion to throw the baseball athletically. By that, I mean, athletically, they create energy from the ground up and properly use their lower half to create optimal timing between their lower half, their upper half, and the arm to the baseball. All of them have thrown the ball harder. They have increased their velocity. So that is no surprise to me at all, even though I'm here in my home and you mentioned this to me. I'm guessing based on my experience working with pitchers and the common sense of, as I said to many people, if you can bench press, the max you can bench press, the world record is say 350. I'm just throwing a number out there. And the max you can bench press is 175, uh, shoulder press is 170 or 200 pounds. And maybe elbow curl, 150. I Googled the maximum leg press. It's like 2,700 pounds. And I believe the maximum deadlift and squat is 700 to 900 pounds. So common sense, once again, my question is, if the legs are that much stronger, like three to four times, why wouldn't you want to maximize the use of that? that lower half strength and energy to throw the baseball. So that shortstop or that third baseman who does maximize the use of the lower half because they're going to the target to create a linear motion, which creates maximum torque between their upper half, I'm sorry, between their lower half. And as soon as their hip begins to rotate, their upper half begins to rotate. So they're transferring maximum energy to their upper half. Makes sense to me, right? He, yeah. got, he probably got in the mound and said, you know what? I'm going to throw like a pitcher. Kicking out, swinging, arm behind the head. You lose six miles an hour. He's 17, 16 years old. Now, I'm not saying that any major league pitcher who went to shortstop and threw the ball and went to the mound, they're going to have a discrepancy of seven, and eight, seven to eight miles an hour. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not making that statement. But it's interesting to your point, for, for shortstops and third basemen, who have to make that long throw, they need to have a certain 
optimal timing and phase movements to be able to make that throw? Why are not pitchers throwing the same way when they're only throwing 60 feet? And quite frankly, they have to throw 80 to 100 times a game. It would make sense to me that they would want to maximize their optimal timing because unlike the shortstop or third baseman, who's maybe making two or three of those throws a game, the pitcher's throwing 80 times a game, right? No, I, I, the, the point about lifting and pitchers, and they don't, they don't use their legs like they should. They use their upper body, which is why they're injured. It's ironic since there's such an emphasis on lifting nowadays in weight room that, that the mechanics wouldn't follow suit. Um, the, the point with the shortstop, you use the phrase, you know, you want, you want the arm like spaghetti, which I love. I've, I've stolen that. I use that on my two boys now. So, um, at least you, you know, I'm listening and paying attention. So with, with that, and I'm thinking of myself as a shortstop and a pitcher, I'm wondering if the, the, the looseness of the body is such because they're making a play and there's no rigidity with the body. They're just, there's no thinking. They're just coming up and their eyes on target, the athletic where that athleticism may be lost with the pitcher. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm overthinking. I'm not a pitcher. So. Yeah. I, I think that let's put it this way. The pictures that I saw in high school, okay. I coached high school baseball for 12 years, right? So if you combine all the pictures I've evaluated in videotape and all the pictures that pitched against us in those 12 years, I don't need one hand to count those pictures who I thought had really good throwing motions and optimal timing. The ones who did were infielders. The best ones were shortstops and third basemen who happened to pitch. That's all I'm going to say. The best pitchers that I saw who had the best kinetic timing and the best motions, like I said, shorter arm path. I wasn't, I'm not concerned about arm path at that point. If a pitcher shows me they have really good kinetic timing and they're using their lower half properly, we can work on the arm path. We can make it a little looser. We can get it up and around. It starts from the ground up. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I don't have the answer. All I can say is that when I work with a the pitcher, um, they might be tight. They might be rigid. That's more about their inflexible, their, their lack of flexibility in their upper half and the lacks of flexibility in their in their in their movement. Um, but, you know, as far as the third basemen or shortstops, I'm sure there's been third basemen and shortstops who make that throw there that would appear to be mechanical or stiffer, you know, than, than, than or more rigid than other infielders. You know, I can't answer that. Um, yeah. But, you know. Well, how much of this applies to Pirates? I guess he is he a prospect still, Mitch Keller? He's oh, a- yeah. You know, before before we get into Keller, let me let me ask you, let, let's th- let's talk about this, because it's it's an observation that I made during the week. And it gets back to uh, putting the pieces of the puzzle or looking at a particular situation. Uh, and this is you know, this is about writers and, and, and how they cover their game or, you know, how we view parts of the game. Right. And it ties into Mitch Keller. But I read an article in the Atlantic and the title was why the pirates keep losing. They're comfortable being mediocre. Okay. So yeah, I don't know whether he was trying to be snarky or whatever, but the, 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 the crux of the article was this, which I, what I found interesting, which led me to do some research. And I always like to do a little bit of research because I want to understand the writer's perspective or anybody's perspective in their reasoning. So the, the, the crux of the article was, and I'll read the first paragraph and then we'll talk. To win with a low budget model requires excelling in all areas of player development. 
Okay, but he goes, but, but the conversations with more than 20 current players and former owners, et cetera, et cetera, who granted an anonymity in order to speak freely revealed numerous energies, issues plaguing the pirates, right? That's what they said. But most of all, the front office was handcuffed, handcuffed, handcuffed by a frugal owner. Okay, that's this writer's way of saying the owner's cheap. Okay, so I go, okay. Before we're going to start knocking the owner of the pirates, I go, let me look at a few things. So I go, let's look at attendance, right? So I looked at the Dodgers. They threw, th- they drew 3.8 million last year. Yankees drew 3.26, San Diego 3.27, the Cardinals 3.24, the Pirates 1.6. So the article went on to say, and somebody made a comment, well, the article, the, the Pirates didn't have a winning team. Who's going to go watch them play? Okay. Well, the Pirates finished in fourth place. 16 games out last year. The Yankees finished in fourth place, 19 games out. San Diego finished in third place, 18 games out. The Cardinals finished in last place, 21 games out. I go, okay, well, there's got to be another reason there because they actually were closer to first place than the other four, three teams that finished in front of them. Throw out the Dodgers because they obviously won the division, right? So I said, let's look at the next revenue, okay? Let's look at Cable revenue, or I'm sorry, look at the average ticket price, right? I want to see, well, what does that 1.6 million difference mean as far as revenue goes? So I go, I tried to Google the average ticket price. They were all over the map from like 70 to 180 to 40, whatever. So I just took an average. I just took an average. Just on attendance revenue, the, the pirates were anywhere from 100, 100 million to 150, 150 million dollars less than the Dodgers and the Yankees. Okay, okay, that's number one. Then I said, let's look at cable revenue because I've looked at this in the past. And the Dodgers, uh, no, sorry, the Yankees' cable revenue—they own their own network, whatever—is 143 million dollars they get from the revenue of televised games. The Dodgers, I read, and I googled this six times because I was somewhat shocked. The Dodgers just signed an $8.35 billion contract for 25 years cable deal. That comes out to $332 million per year. The Pirates cable deal is $60 million. Okay. So I'm going, let's put all these pieces of the puzzle together. Now, if you want to call the Pirates owner frugal, you can. But I would say there's a reason for him to be frugal based on the revenue that his organization is generating. So, you know, and, and so well, I want to add that gets back to the next thing I looked at because everybody talks about, well, the luxury tax, right? Well, they're getting all this money from all these wealthy teams. It evens it out. It, you know, they, it's really called the competitive balance tax. So I said, let me see if I can understand how this tax works. So I Googled it and I researched it. And I said, once again, I tried it five or six times from six different articles because I go, that doesn't make any sense to me based on what they're saying. That's just a luxury tax makes everybody competitive. Well, last year, eight teams paid $200 million, $209 million in luxury tax, eight teams. The Mets were by far the highest. They were like $100 million and one or two teams paid one, two, three more million dollars. So I go, okay, fine. That's $200 million, $209 million. Said, who gets that? How do they divvy it up? So once again, I had to, I did this three or four times because I go, this can't be right. It says the tax money is used to fund player benefits, the first 3.5 million, and goes to the individual retirement accounts. 50% 
of the remainder. I'm sorry. I apologize. The tax money is used to fund player benefits. That's 3.5 million. And the player's individual retirement accounts, that's 50% of the remainder. The other 50%, I underscore the remaining 50% of the, re- of the total, goes to a supplemental commissioner's discretionary fund intended to be given to certain teams receiving revenue sharing money. So I go, okay, if I do the math, that's $100 million left of this revenue sharing money that's going to make the league competitive. So I looked and said, let's look at the re- what the what the re- what the revenue um, um, and the payrolls were. I'm sorry, the payrolls of the teams last year. Well, ten teams were under ninety million dollars. Okay, so I look and go, okay, who are they dividing that money up? If they divide it amongst all ten teams, I'm sure they think that that's not quite the average revenue. That's ten million per team. If they want to donate it to and 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 share it with the bottom five teams, that's twenty million dollars. Okay, so twenty million dollars goes to the Pirates. That would not allow them to decide because they were the part of the comment was they're very frugal and they're cheap signing free agents. That additional twenty million dollars, based on their cable revenue and their attendance revenue, forget about signing Shohei Otani. They would not be able to sign Bill Otani. So I go, I go, what is this writer talking about? What are we talking about with competitive balance? Does the luxury tax really make any difference? And how do the Pittsburgh Pirates compete with the Dodgers who just signed a cable TV contract for $332 million per year, or even the Yankees who signed a cable deal and have generate $143 million in revenue. I don't understand that. That's my question. How do they think the pirates can compete? I don't, I, I don't, if I was the owner of the pirates, I wouldn't have a clue. I would have to have a phenomenal scouting system. I would have to have a phenomenal team of player development coaches because I can't afford to miss on anybody. And I got to eat, I got to, I got to get the last ounce of talent of everybody that I sign because I can't go out and get anybody. <laughs> like they can't follow what you want. They fired all the scouts and and they uh, most most places when they reduced the minor league system where a lot of the development takes place. So yeah, that that, that it certainly hurts them in that regard. I wonder okay, too. I'll tell you what, here's here's the kicker, right? So they talk about here's and I hate to interrupt you, but I'll add this and then we can you can continue. This is this is hot stuff. I go, okay, I got it. I can't tell you how many articles I've read where the writers will talk about the net worth of owners and basically saying, hey, you want to build your team, you know, you know, get, get, get money out of your 401k, dip into your bank account, okay, their own personal money. I get it. You can want, you can do it if you want to, but usually smart business men look at the revenue that their, their, their business is, is uh, generating to see whether they want to be reinvested. But I said, okay, fine, I'll give it to you. All the writers want to talk about all these wealthy owners and they should spend all their own personal money to put into the team. Got it. Okay. But then I looked and I Googled the net worth of all the owners. It ranges from $1 billion to $16 billion. Now, granted, $1 billion is a ton of money. But if you're talking about competitive balance and owners being able to, to, to dip into the till, there's even a great disparity within the wealth of the owners that they're looking to the owners to buy players. 
So I go, that's not, there's no competitive balance there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder how much if they should have to spend that money on players. And I, that's the other part with these low budget teams. They, they do have to be a little innovative with how they approach the game. And, you know, they, I, I would hope they were forced to spend that money on talent or something that helps with talent. Well, they're only getting, but, but, but as I said, they're only, they only got, I mean, I don't, how do you want to divvy up the money this year? If you, if you took the, the, the average payroll last year was $147 million. Okay. There were 18 below the average 60%. Okay. So like I said, 10 teams, their payroll was $90 million or less. Now, if you're telling me, I don't have the books that that there's another, you know, the Dodgers just spent $700 million on Otani. Are you telling me that the Pirates and the Cubs, not the Cubs, the Pirates and the Royals and the Tigers and some of the other teams with low payrolls all have an additional 250 to $300 million that's sitting in the bank and they don't want to use it for, you know, to pay free agents and to build development in, in, in their minor league system? Well, then, then we have a real conversation, right? We have a real conversation. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I'm just basing it on the the, uh, the payrolls they have. The payrolls they have, and like I said, looking at the revenue that Pittsburgh is able to bring in via their attendance and via their cable. Right. That's all. That's all. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. I, I believe, and I'll, I'll do some research on it. That they they aren't spending it based on the the salaries. But the other thing with which I couldn't believe these clubs didn't have a problem with it. But this past year, the Dodgers did pay seven hundred million for Otani, but they backloaded. He's only making uh, like a million a year, and I forget what the actual number is. And they backloaded. Oh, I'm sorry, no, he's making eighteen million over like the next nine years, and they backloaded six hundred eighty-two million dollars of that to defer to when he's done playing. And uh, the only thing they do have to show is the owner. And this gives to your to your point where the people with the deepest pockets have the advantage just has to show that the, the Dodgers ability to pay that at the end of every year. So they just move money into account. They show it for that day, move it back to wherever else it belongs in his pocket or from whatever. And uh, that was criminal what they did. And nobody cried foul with the, the low budget teams. Oh, they, some, I think somebody told me that they only had to declare 40 million of that against the luxury tax, which if I was a small market team, I'd go nuts over that. Yeah, barely. You know, it's, one thing, it's one thing to say, you know what? You don't have to pay him. You can defer for ten years, but <laughs> it's seventy million dollars against a luxury tax. That that to me is just insane. Yeah, I don't get that. A, if that's correct, I don't get that. Yeah, they 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 circumvented the the rule or exploited it. Now, what was the Fergie quote? You had Fergie quote down. You're talking about the pitcher, not the black eyed peace singer. Oh yeah, well yeah, that, that was that was had to do with. Um, let me get, yeah, we're interested here. That has to do with um, um, kind of a funny quote. I got to know Fergie a little bit. I, I met, I, I uh, was able to talk to him on the phone through a mutual friend of mine. And um, it has to do that, to, to, to sidetrack, it has to do with the um, the training regimentations of pitchers now. And I talked to one or two former general managers who um, talk about the emphasis on weight training. And, and I also coupled that with, uh, they made a big deal during the season pitchers couldn't, you know, were having trouble with the 22nd clock, you know, the pitch clock. It was, you know, they weren't able to, to, to pitch during the game, uh, whether it was their stamina, whether it was the ability to perform, whatever the case may be. So I, it. 
I kind of held at that. I mean, I, I pitched in the Florida State League where it was 95 degrees and 90% humidity. And after I get used to the heat, I was like, I, I don't think I threw a ball. It took me more than nine seconds to throw a ball. But that's a different, you know, put that aside. So anyway, Jenkins was interviewed uh, and he spoke about this. Uh, Dusty Baker was talking. He said Jenkins motor was one of the first things a young, this article is saying was one of the first things a young Dusty Baker noticed during a spring training game when he, when he was in the outfield Baker who broke into the majors with the Atlanta Braves. saw Hank Aaron running a lot, but seeing a pitcher doing the same was slightly different. I've never seen pitchers train like that. Baker said, I said, man, why do you run so much? He goes, Dusty, why do you think I won 20 games, six years in a row and pitched 300 innings four years in a row? Right. So it, it got back to the conversation I had with Ferguson Jenkins about, you know, training and, and staying in shape. And I think he said to me this a couple of years ago, I, I, I chopped wood in the offseason and I ran my butt off during the season. Right. So I go, that makes sense to me. And in, in working with pitchers or talking to physical therapists and strength and conditioning coaches, pitching is an anaerobic exercise. So how do you create energy and, and stamina to to be able to endure and perform and maximize your performance in anaerobic exercise? Well, do you do anaerobic training? And to me, that was running, you know, 100, 100, you know, 50 yard sprints, 100 yard sprints, whatever the case may be, doing ball pickups. I mean, I remember in spring training, we used to do ball pickups for people out there to wonder what that is. Somebody would get maybe 10 feet in front of you, 15 feet in front of you. And you get kind of in an athletic stance and they throw the ball side to side and you have to bend over and pick it up and throw it back to them. And you got wider and wider and wider and wider. And that was after running for like 15, 20 minutes and doing sets of 50 to 75 ball pickups. Yep, that'll, 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 that'll get your anaerobic energy up and your legs strong. Because <laughs> They want to be good fielders. They want to develop the legs that fielders have. Do pickups. That's all we do in the wintertime was pickups. It was great for your leg exercise. So what about your, you've got some, you have uh, the re rehab threes. What, what is that about? Oh, yeah. I, I read some, we talked about, I read some articles and, and, and this is something I found extremely interesting from a common sense standpoint and also from a physical rehabilitative, stamp, rehabilitative standpoint. Um, so we talked about last week where I broke the, you know, pitching into the threes for young pitchers so that I understand. So in, in reading several articles on, um, on Gill and Birdie and Senga and some other pitchers, um, they, they all talked about um, their rest. They all talked about their rehab to strengthen their shoulder, their elbow, their forearm. Uh, they talked about getting some injections. They talked about the medical treatment. So I thought about what I think of the three th rehab threes, which is one, which is, um, which is rest. Two, which is strengthen, but three is adjustments, right? Because my feeling is, and I'll give you an analogy, Dave, you, you lift weights and you come to me and uh, I'm the physical therapist and you go, I got a back injury. And I go, okay, let me do this. Let me, let me, let me examine you. Um, let me see what you've you're injured. Let me give you some exercises. Let me give you some strengthening exercises because we need to, you know, you need to rest. We need to get this healed, but you need to be able to, you know, get back to 100%. But I'm also going to send you to my buddy who's a strength and conditioning coach because I want him to take a look at how you're deadlifting. I want him to look at how you're squatting to see whether anything you're doing is causing this injury other than maybe you lifted too much weight. So <clears throat> send them to Joe and Joe takes a look at him and 
could take them through some exercises and go, hey, we need to break this down. I said, you, you hurt your back because you're not lifting properly. You're not creating energy from the ground up. You haven't created good timing. Yes, you probably lifted too much weight, but we need to start and we need to break this down a little bit. And I need to show you what you need and the adjustment you need to make so you can mitigate your risk of future injury. So not only can you get healthy through your rehab, you can also get stronger and actually mitigate your risk of injury. I can honestly say, which I, I, I don't understand, is that in the last five years of reading articles, countless articles about major league pitchers who have been injured, all, all injuries from elbow to shoulder to lat to Tommy John surgery, I've never read one single quote from anyone that talks about their rehabilitation and within that discussion or in that comment talks about, yes, got injured. Yes, this is his rehab, but we noticed that or he needs to make some adjustments to mitigate his risk of future injury. It's always rest, strengthen, get back on the mound. And that's even in the context of comments and quotes I've read where I'm going to do everything I can to get healthy or the pitching coach or, the, or, or anybody in the organization says, hey, we're looking at every angle. We're looking to maximize his ability to rehab and his maximize his ability to get back on, his, on the mound strong as ever. Okay. My question is, why isn't that part of the rehab? Because if you get injured, 99% of the time, there's a reason why you've got injured. There's a cause that needs to be corrected to the best of your ability to be able to minimize your future risk of injury. I've never read a quote from anybody in the game that speaks about what adjustment that pitcher has to make to stay healthy. Zero. Zero. Yeah. No, it's just good points. And who, who is this Nate Lavender? Oh, that was just, it was interesting. It, it gets back to, um, once again, you pick up stuff, right? And I kind of laugh and I chuckle. Um, Nate Lavender is a relief pitcher the Mets are high on, right? And um, is obviously doing pretty well in spring training. But the, the comment was, and which caught my eye, uh, the 24-year-old has below average velocity, but an above average ability to spin the ball. They were talking about his fastball, and while he doesn't have high velocity, there's a lot of hits and misses, right? So I go, okay, fine, right? Um, and the next quote was, he's a guy who has a lot of deception. I'm going to take one at a time. We talked about spin rate a couple weeks ago in the study I did. So his fastball, they said a little better than average or above average. So the number one fastball spin rate was 20, 2,794. That comes out to 23 spins or revolutions to the plate out of the hand, right? Because it's, it's revolutions per minute. And we know the baseball doesn't travel for a minute. So the average of the top 10, if I average the top 10 spin rates for the fastball, was 21.6. So if they give Lavender an above-average spin rate, it has nothing to do with his performance as being training. I'm just howling at what they're hanging their hat on. If I look at Lavender and I give him 2,500, that comes out to 20.8 spins to the plate. The number 40 spin rate ranking was 19.4. 
So you're telling me that you're attributing everything he does and his ability to get people out with his fastball because it spins 1.4 more times to the plate? I don't buy that. You'd have to you'd have to give me a little more reasoning for that. And so so the second one, which I th- which I really laughed at, where the official said he's a guy who has a lot of deception. I broke down his throwing motion into five different photos. I probably have photos of 150 to 200 pitchers who throw exactly like he does, who have the same phase movements, who have the same ball timing, have the same arm positioning. So I do not know what they're talking about when the comment was he's a guy who has a lot of deception. Okay. It makes it seem like he's the exception to the rule. Now, if I should interpret that is that he has the same deception as 200 other pitchers I've evaluated who are injured. Okay. I'll buy that. That's not what I took away from the comment though. Um, but that's why I kind of brought that up. Cause once again, it was out the spin rate and I'm going, his ball spins one more time to the plate. Okay. I haven't seen the guy pitch, but there's gotta be another reason why he's effective. Gotta be another reason. I don't think one spin does it. Maybe I'm wrong. If, if no. once again, that's it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm up. Op- once again, we talk, I'm open to conversation. I'm open to say, Hey Jim, this is why this one spin makes him as effective at 92 miles per hour. Okay, fine. I don't understand that. I'm glad, I'm glad you taught me, <laughs> but from what I know about pitching, I don't know whether that makes a big difference or not. <laughs> Think about it from the other side. The whole idea of getting a batter out is to get him off balance. Um, that one extra spin, a human eye can't detect that. So there's oh no, my I mean, gosh. Oh my gosh. It's, so it's not going to matter to a hitter. Well, they talk about the ball rising, whatever, whatever the ball's doing. Okay. It's going to do that. It's going to do that much more with one more spin. Now, if the answer is yes, I go, okay, I get it. A common sense tells me probably not, but I'm open. I'm open. I'm open, Dave. Yeah. Well, you, you got your name in the newspaper. Was it this weekend? Oh, yeah. Phil Mushnick uh, put me in the paper under equal time about Pete Maravich. Yes. Yeah. You, well, you, 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 we talked a little bit about it last show. Um, you know, you were at a game. I know you and Jim Rooney. It sounds like you guys were at the same game, one of our other hosts for Toe the Rubber. Um, but yeah, you had, you had, you had you, I think basically what you wrote in there was pretty close to what you said on the show. Yeah. It was, it was pretty good. It was pretty funny when I, when I sent that. Uh, my nephews and my son were in a grip. We're in a group chat, and uh, my son calls it Dylan's daddies because we had a, we had a couple golden retrievers, and one of them, uh, the male, was called Dylan. So they'd always refer to me as Dylan's daddy, and my line was, "I'm not his daddy." But anyway, long story short. So anyway, I sent this out, and then uh, so my nephew Eric goes, "Hey, Uncle Jim's going after Kate and Clark now," and I go, "Listen, I'm not." Kudos to her, as we talked about last week. I said, great, great for the game, tremendous, whatever the case might be. I said, I'm not going. I said, I'm going after the writers and the pundits. And, 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 and this is really what it came down to, is that um, I, read a, I read an article or a quote about one of these, one of the former uh, collegiate stars and professional basketball players who kind of doubled down and, 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 and was speaking about um, he couldn't consider Caitlin Clark a goat. It was, you know, this, uh, this Jay Williams. There's this term "goat" is used all the time, greatest of all time. And his comment was, "Well, you got to win. You got to you got to win championships. You got to win championships. If we're going to call you a goat." So, uh, 
I will refer the listeners to an article, and I'll make a comment about that in a second. But Christian Fleming in the New York Post wrote a really good article about this, about how we should celebrate Caitlin Clark. And as a standalone, regardless of male, female, whatever, great performance has done great, some, you know, great for the game, especially women's sports, right? But she made this quote, which I talk to athletes all the time in the paper. Kristen goes, she could have followed the trophy line path to schools such as UConn or South Carolina. Instead, she went to Iowa, which has many conference trophies, but has won exactly zero national titles, though they came close last year. Clark paved her own way, writing a tale that's far more complex than intriguing. And I and 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 as I said, I will talk to athletes all the time, especially when I was coaching about where they want to go to school. Some were really talented, some had average talented. It ran the spectrum. Um, and uh, I even said this to my daughter, who was a, was a tremendous athlete, was an All-American lacrosse player in college. I said, yeah, you could go to a school, the top three or four schools that have won titles, and you can continue to help continue that title run. But it's a heck of a lot cooler And it says more about your ability or your desire to go to a school and bring them up to that level. I said, that's a that's a much bigger challenge. Now, I don't know why Caitlin Clark went to Ohio. I'm not speaking to her reasoning, whatever the case may be. Iowa's got a great program, right? Yeah, Um, Iowa. Yeah, she's I think she's an Iowa kid, right? An Iowa kid. Yeah. But we could certainly say, honestly, that Iowa is not South Carolina or prior to her going there. Iowa was not South Carolina or Baylor or UConn or any of the top schools, right? And that's not a that's not knocking Iowa. It's just a reality yeah, no, of fact. They never have. They they've been uh, they've been kind of a well. There was a time, but they've never gone to that upper echelon. They've always right. been. They, they weren't in that upper that rarefied air of those four or five schools, right? So I'm going. Why would anybody, Jay Williams, Jay Williams, anybody? Make that kind of comment. Now, so once again, I did some research. Okay, it's all about goats, right? You got to win championships. Here, here's some uh, names I'll throw out to your 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 listening on our listening audience. And once again, great athletes had great careers. Clyde Love Lovellette had three NBA titles. Horace Grant had three. Sam Cassell had three. Jorge Posada won four World Series. Joe Girardi won four World Series. Max McGee. Green Bay Packer receiver years ago, two Super Bowls. Devin McCounty, I think his last name, won five Super Bowls. Mar Fleming, a teammate of Max McGee, won, no, I'm sorry, wasn't a teammate of Max McGee, went out to play for the Miami Dolphins, won four Super Bowls. Mac, Matt Light won five Super Bowls. So you're really telling me that it's all about the banners. Uh, an, an absurd statement. An absurd statement. Number one, it's absurd based on fact. Dan Marino, if Dan Marino played today with the rules they have, he might have won six Super Bowls and passed for 6,000 yards a game in a season in his sleep. When Dan Marino played, and they always talk about him not winning a Super Bowl, he went to one. Short of criminal assault, you could mug a receiver. And pretty much do anything you want with a quarterback. Now what we have is the National FFL, National Flag Football League. And that's not taking anything away from any of you quarterbacks who play today. Phenomenal athletes.
But seriously, we're going to compare somebody who played quarterback 50 years ago or 40 years ago with somebody who plays today with the rule changes? It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a fun conversation over the bar with a couple beers. It means absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, uh, the, the thing that they're missing to it, they, they made it a, a man, they tried to make it a man woman issue. And it's really not like Lynette Woodard is, she scored 3,649 points. Now Clark will surpass that, but they don't even count her as the, the, the scoring champion on the women's side right now because she played in the old, oh, what was it, the AIWA before, before the NCAA. They were, yeah, before they were associated with the NCAA, yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, I mean, Clark will pass that, but that shows just how ridiculous somebody like Jay Williams is. He's missing that whole point. And then Pearl Moore, who's actually the school's in my backyard, Francis Marion, no, it's Division Two, but she scored uh, 3884. Um, but uh, and again, it's you know D, obviously D two you can't compare that to what Clark's done, but but still they miss celebrating two other women who've done it. Actually, African American women who've done it in a time where it wasn't even African American men weren't pushed. Instead of making it a Pistol Pete, who I love, uh, doesn't matter. I don't care what happens. That's that's uh, that's the guy right there. But uh, but what Clark's done is amazing. She elevated a program that I don't. They weren't irrelevant, but they weren't like you said. They weren't upper echelon. And uh, she elevated him. She's stuck home. She's she's been a four year kid. She's a good kid. Uh, plays the game hard. She's brought. I mean, they, they go. And, and again, you if you watch the stands at women's basketball games when they show games on ESPN, even the the Power Five schools, there's there's. I mean, you could lie down in the stands at some oh, of them. Oh, I went out down. It's it's like a it, yeah, exactly. It's like a, this kid's uh, been selling out. I mean, people yeah. are. There's major sports figures that are driving their daughters to Iowa, like almost like Field of Dreams, like across the country to watch this kid play one time. And so I like what she's done, record or no record. She's made women's basketball a little bit more watchable and a little bit more exciting. And I just think people are, you know, there, there's no barrier for entry right now. And I guess we're we're evidence of that, right? We have our own podcast network and we're we're flying high. But Jay Williams is is uh, he he. He doesn't say a lot of smart things. Well, I just, I, 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 it just caught me. I mean, I don't know Jay. I don't know Jay Williams from a hole in the wall. I'm just saying that when you make that statement, I go, okay, fine. So I said, okay, let's let's talk about banners. Who's who's won trophies, right? Yeah. Now it it certainly it certainly elevates you in the world of sports, right? I think we can say this that you could say that Dan Marino. You could argue that Dan Marino was a better quarterback than X just ability wise. Now, if you're going to say the other quarterback was a, was a bigger winner, that would be fair, but just to hang your hat on quarterback X, Y, and Z, because they won two, three or four Super Bowls. Well, you know, I can't speak for Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins, but I remember reading back then that what they were always lacking was a defense. Okay. Or a running game or whatever the case may be, whatever the components are to make a team successful. Yeah. Well, that that's that has a bearing on how many titles and how many banners you put up on the ceiling, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a there's a timing component to it. But I, I like your point to Clark. She, she went to a program, elevated it significantly, and if they the the longer they play, the higher the ratings are going to be for women's basketball in the tournament. As soon as they get knocked out, it'll it'll drop back to 
to uh, normalcy, but she's good for the game. Yeah, I, I, I hate that phrase, the goat. It's, it's, I hate the Mount Rushmore thing. I hate the goat thing. It's, I put up a Facebook post on that when it came out and then uh, asked the audience what they thought. It's still going. I, they probably listed 2,000 people who would be considered great players in different sports that didn't win a championship. And, uh, oh, you, you know, you'd, I, spend, you'd, spend, you'd spend millions of dollars at a bar and have conversations with 1,000 different people before you came up with two people decided on the same player. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that they call that Facebook now. It's the bar without the, well, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, we, we, it's interesting that, we, you know, and, and what I found interesting was, uh, the comment that Jay Williams made, and this happens a lot. And once again, not picking on Jay, I've heard this with other people. I'm, I was quoted out of context. You didn't read the whole article. That's fair because he did, he was very complimentary in other parts of the article he spoke about. Yeah, but he spoke about that live first. So he not only did he speak about it live and got hammered, he got a chance to write it too. So he got the chance to, to get hammered, think about it, and then actually put pen to paper. So right. yeah, he's, he, I saw that. He was at Auburn on game day and uh, they, they killed him there. And Reese Davis, who's the, who's the kind of the host, he stood up and he said, let me try to see if I can help my, my buddy out here. Basically, he's telling you guys that Charles Barkley was no good because Barkley went to Auburn and they just they were he couldn't speak the rest of the show. An hour long show after that were without them booing him every time he opened his mouth. Yeah, um, it's it's just, you know, it's it's one thing. It's one thing we talked about this before. It's one thing everybody's misquoted. Right. But the other thing uh, to, to blame anything on being misquoted versus the reality of the social media world that we live in, that all these pundits are part of that, that perpetrate these types of conversations. I guess you could say they're interesting, but it gets back to the original point I made about the writers and, and your perspective and balance when you write about the game or speak about the game. Okay. You can applaud Caitlin Clark or anybody, male, female, as much as you want. Okay. But do not put them in the same sentence as Pete Maravich, because once again, I had somebody text me who listened to the broadcast and I quoted and spoke about the game I watched against Kentucky where he poured in 61. And I think no shot was closer than 28 feet to the basket. And this individual wrote me and said, you sports network went back and they, they looked at all the tape of all the games and they inserted, which would have been a 19 foot or 20 foot point three point line. They said that calculated that Maravich would have scored 65 points a game that season. 60, he would have averaged 65 points. Different time, different generation, different game, whatever you want to say. But when you write something, take that into consideration and oh, use yeah. some perspective before you're trying to make a comparison about, hey, she's going to break Pete Maravich's scoring record. No, she's not. She's going to create her own scoring record and oh, leave yeah. her at that. That's it. And you got to think, too, if they had the three-point line, he would have taken some more premeditated three-point shots. We probably would have seen the first fast break pull up from three. Oh, my God. Then. He was taking four-point shots. Seriously. That game against Kentucky, if there was a four-point line, a third of his shots would have been four points. <laughs> and teams' defenses back then were, were packed in more because they didn't have to guard the three-point line, so they would have had to expand their defense a little bit. Exactly. It would have had a lot more advantages than that. It's, it's, so. real, it's really, it's really kind of a, it's it's interesting. It's also kind of a sad commentary to me on on sports and how we deal with issues and how we just can't, as you said, appreciate 
and, uh, you know, instead of just appreciating and lauding people and rewarding them for their efforts, everybody's got to chime in with their two cents and, and offer it and be there, you know, make it their, you know, Andy Warhol, five minutes of fame. And that's, that's unfortunate. It. I'm sure it's, it's water, or water off the ducks back to her, I guess. My impression is she probably could care less, um, but it's just uh, it's it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. So what about your book of the week here? I think I recognize that title. Oh yeah, great book I read a couple my uh, a couple uh, years ago called Mindset. Uh, it's by Carol Dweck, who's a Carol Dweck out in Stanford, Carol, right? Out of Stanford, right? Yeah. It's a really good book about how people grow, development, how they process, uh, how they process failure, um, and she takes that concept, the growth mindset and the fixed mindset, throughout yeah. the entire book into different areas of life, business relationships, athletics, the classroom. Uh, it's really insightful um, about people who have a growth mindset that are not afraid to fail and embrace failure. Know they learn from failure. That's how they grow. That's how they develop versus people with a fixed mindset who are afraid of failure because it doesn't reinforce what they believe to be their ability, their intelligence, their talent, and they just do things that reinforce what they feel they do well. And she said, that's, that's you know, in a nutshell, in the paraphrase, that's kind of the difference between the two. And I thought it was just fascinating as applying it to, a, uh, to uh, she applies it a lot to the educational world and to the athletic world. Oh, I love that book too. I, I'm a big fan of what Carol Dweck does. And yeah, the, the, uh, the process People get confused by that. When they talk about process, it doesn't mean people don't want to have success, but the growth mindset allows you to pick up cues with failure. And if you can turn those mistakes to principles, now you got a better process and you're eventually going to reach where you want to go. Or these fixed mindset individuals are so governed by that that number, that individual number, which is part of what scares me about analytics sometimes. And I was guilty of it as an athlete, as a college athlete, two sports, basketball, baseball. When I would start locking in on numbers, you know, points, assists, uh, hits, uh, average. That's when I would, would see my dips when I got back into, Hey, this is what I'm about. This, this bat bat is the only experience I'm worried about, or, you know, all I'm worried about is the next shot or the next pass doing things the right way, do the next right thing. Right. So I love that book. It's, it's on my shelf as well. So I I encourage people if they don't have it, get it. It's, It's a, it's a great read. Well, it really is. It allows you also to figure out that you have to live in the moment. And uh, I mean, I mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Jokovic was doing an interview and they asked him about, hey, you know, when the, when the, when the match gets really tight and, uh, you know, with set point or with this or that, and it's a really big point, you know, do you get do you get nervous? Do you, does the adrenaline start pumping? He goes, yes, yes. Without a doubt, he goes, I'm human. But he goes, I've trained my mind. I've trained my body to be able to handle this, to be able to deal with it, to be able to minimize it so I can perform to the best of my ability. So it's kind of analogous, but it's the same thing. Everything in sports is a process. The mental aspect of the game is a process, the physical aspect and the emotional part. You don't all of a sudden wake up going, wait, I can handle this moment. It's not too big for me. The moment's the same for everybody, as Jokovic said. It's a question of how do you handle a moment? Have you trained yourself? So you can handle the moment and still perform. That's a difference. I mean, that's a difference. Well, we've we've kept you for well over an hour, an hour and ten minutes plus right now. 
um, I think the audience got a ton today to grab onto. Um, where where can they find you? How can they reach you? Oh yeah, well you know if they want to get it, like I said, better visual understanding of what I'm talking about. Um, uh, athleticpictureseries.com. There's five videos, uh, short video clips on the homepage that speak about what we've been talking about and speaking about uh, the athletic picture. And uh, anybody who wants to dialogue with me or can answer any of my questions or provide me insight to my thinking, uh, maybe I need to look at things differently and give me your perspective. Um, you can reach me at JACTAP, that's G-A-C-T-A-P, two at gmail.com. Happy to dialogue, always happy, always happy and willing to listen and learn. Sounds good. And to our audience of almost 70,000, thanks for your support. I mentioned all of our partners in the beginning, Millions, Jaw Bats, the Kinetic Arm, One-on-One, Monet. Um, make sure you're, you're supporting those. And I'll have the link in the show notes and on social media with Millions. Get on there. Engage our hosts. Uh, there's a way to bring them on, ask them a question. You can order merchandise and gear. You can hire them out to come speak at your next engagement. Marketing, advertisers, that's where you put in your proposal. So um, we, we appreciate people wanting to be a part of what we're doing here. With that, the arms race, episode 471 on The Real Voice of the Game. It's a wrap. Jim, thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.